Live from the bridge at the Launchpad Studios in Huntington, New York, it's Sports Talk New York with your hosts, Mark Rosenman and A.J. Carter. Sports Talk New York is sponsored in part by Cardboard Memories, Clearview, Long Island, the law firm of Decalator, Cohen, and DePrisco, the Phoenix Tube Company, Pims Incorporated, fueling brand performance for 30 years, Prince Associates for all your insurance needs, and Soho Table Hockey. Here are your hosts, Mark and AJ. Joining us now is a man who is one of our generation's best sports writers. He has written nine books that have appeared on the New York Times bestseller list. He's the author of the infamous 1999 John Rocker interview in Sports Illustrated. The HBO series Winning Time is based on his 2014 book, Showtime Magic, Kareem Riley and the Los Angeles Lakers Dynasty of the 1980s. His latest book, The Last Folk Hero, draws on an astonishing 720 original interviews, captures a never-be-seen-before the elusive truth about Bo Jackson, superstar of both the NFL and Major League Baseball. But if you are a longtime listener of our show, you know that our love affair with Jeff's writing started way back before all of that. And it actually can be traced to June of 2003 with these opening words to a piece he did for Newsday. My son has not always been a freak, says Terry Bahin, which is funny because he actually is not a freak. He is the freak. It's a small but important detail. AJ and I have been hooked ever since, and we're thrilled to welcome back the one and only Jeff Perlman back to Sports Talk New York. Welcome, Jeff. I just want to say, whenever people say, like, uh, one of the best sports writers, blah, 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 it's basically all just euphemisms for old. That's all it is. It's old. It's old. Hey, you, you, you're younger than at least me, if not Mark. You don't know that for sure, but yeah. Probably. Hello, for AJ, we definitely know that for sure. Yeah, right. yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Uh, so it, it's amazing that Bo Jackson just turned 60 years old, and it's been 28 years since his last baseball game, 32 since his last football game. So why a biography of Bo Jackson now? What was it uh, about him that made you want to? dive so deeply into his life and what did you hope to add to the discussion um as you call it life and myth that would go beyond the autobiography that was written and your ghost written by dick shap well i don't have a great reason for why now like i get asked that a lot why now why bo jackson now and i'm like i don't know i needed to write a book and here nobody done one in a long time and but i mean i am very very nostalgic um sometimes i don't like that about myself but i am it's one of those things i can't get rid of and when I was growing up, Bo Jackson was the man, you know, I'm, I was born in 1972. So I was 17 years old when he let off the all-star game with a home run. And I was 14 when he had his first major league hit. And I just, I loved everything about Bo Jackson. He was, he was really mythical to me and, and cliche be damned, like larger than life. So when I was thinking about next books to write, I just kind of was thinking about, um, there never been since his autobiography, there hadn't been a definitive, definitive Bo Jackson book. And I don't really consider autobiographies oftentimes definitive. They're, they're a singular perspective. They're, I love autobiographies, but they're a singular perspective. They're not all encompassing. You're not getting the takes of a million different people. And I just thought he was worthy of it. I, I, I always think like, who's iconic? Like, I do think this when I think of books, who, who's iconic, not just great, but iconic. And there's something about Bo Jackson, even despite the shortness of his career, that I consider iconic. So you mentioned the autobiography, you know, Bo Knows Bo. You're able to get a hold of the original interview tapes with Dick Shap, hours and hours of audio recordings. 
Um, you know, we know that Bo didn't speak to you for this book, but how cool was it to call over all of those tapes of a 28 year old Bo Jackson? And, you know, when you're going through that and there's so much stuff that was not in the book, are you shocked by that? Oh yeah. Um, I was shocked it existed. I didn't know it existed. And then someone at Auburn made me aware of it. It was in the Auburn library. It was available. Um, and it was a game changer. It's one of the best, if not the best reporting find I've ever had in my book career. Um, and it wasn't, a, it wasn't just the tapes. They were all transcribed. In fact, they were transcribed in the summer of 1990 by a very young Jeremy Schapp, who did it for his dad. So I had all the transcriptions. I didn't have to listen to all the tapes and jot it all down. I literally had it in front of it. It was amazing. And um, the thing is, like, uh, an autobiography is so different than a biography in that he may tell something to Dick Schaap in 1989, you know, the Kevin Seitzer fight, the time when I beat up Kevin Seitzer. Well, in his autobiography, he never mentions Kevin Seitzer. And maybe he he just didn't want to really burn that bridge, or maybe there's a reason. Well, it's 30 years later. I know it's Kevin Seitzer. He doesn't mention Kevin Seitzer in the notes. He just doesn't mention the book. And I just, well, that's cool. That's fresh material. And um, it was magical for me. It was really one of the great finds of all time for me. First of all, in terms of old, the year you were born, I was already working at Newsday. Wow. <laughs> all right. I feel good. <laughs> Part of what makes someone or something a legend is how stories or feats get increasingly magnified with the telling of far beyond what actually happened. So to draw an analogy from the events in your book, memories of a long home run start at 400 feet and 500 feet. By the time you end up, you clear the Empire State Building. So in reporting this book and talking to both teammates, recalling specific hits or breakaway runs. How did you go about trying to separate fact from myth? And was there some story so seemingly preposterous that you didn't even try? Um, it's hard. It's really hard. And I can't guarantee it's one of the flaws of this. I mean, dating back to my newspaper days, like you write a story, you do a profile of some kid and you say, when was the first time you knew you wanted to play baseball? Maybe it's a high school kid. And he says, oh, I was 10 years old and I was watching the Mets on TV. Well, maybe he's forgetting the time when he was seven and he played catch with his dad. You know, like, but we kind of have to rely on memory to a certain degree. We just do. It's a flaw of humanity. It's a flaw of journalism. We have to remind when we ask a ball player, what were you thinking in that at bat? And he says, I was thinking on just focusing on the pitcher. Well, maybe he was actually thinking about a Simpsons episode he saw that night, but he doesn't remember that. Like, that's a flaw of memory. So... I'm aware there's an, there's an inherent flaw that is just there. There's not that much I can do it. What I really try to do is just find as many people as possible to relay their memory of something and share it. And then I try to de layer it with more people remembering it and more people remembering it. And then you're cross-checking. And hopefully, like, uh, the good example is when Bo was a junior at Auburn and he first hit the first home run in the night game at Alabama at uh, University of Georgia. And he hit the lights. It was the first night game ever. He, is, he hits a home run. It hits the lights. And well, I probably interviewed 15 people, maybe 20 people who were at the game. And there was only one article I could find. It was in the University of Georgia student newspaper. But you just cross-check and cross-check and cross-check and cross-check and hope by the end you have some fairly precise uh, recollection. But it's not easy. And there's a flaw to it. You know, in that vein, it's so interesting because, you know, you're you grew up with Bo, okay? If you could transport Bo to now, 
with all the social media and, and everyone at every single high school game has a, a cell phone out where they can take video and post it to Instagram and everywhere. You know, what do you think if social media existed during Bo's time, what do you think he you know, how big as big as he was then? How much bigger do you think the fact that we'd be able to authenticate all those unbelievable feats he did in high school? Um. I, first of all, I think it'd be much le- much less enjoyable. Um, I do. I just think like the whole reason, the whole joy of this thing, or not the whole, but much of it, is the mystique of Bo Jackson. And it is hearing someone say, "Oh, he hit a home run, five hundred feet, and a dented a truck." And if you had a like, I all right, there's one moment that, I've talked about this before, but there's one moment in the book. He's a, a senior at high school, Macadory High, and he hits a baseball so high against Fairfield High. By the time it comes down in left field, he's rounding third base. All right. And I heard that story told, and everyone, oh, it's the most amazing thing I've ever seen. Most amazing. You need to call Eddie Scott, the left fielder. Or I called Eddie Scott, the left fielder for Fairfield High, and he verified it. He talked about it. And it's an amazing story. He hits the ball so high. He's rounding third. Eddie picks it up. He looks to second. Bo's rounding third. Home. But maybe if we had a video of that game, maybe there was a really stiff wind. And maybe the ball just got caught up in the wind. Or maybe there was a tree. And maybe it hit a tree. Like, there's a million different things that could have happened. And if we had it on video, there's no possible way, no way it would look as cool as it sounds. It just isn't. There's no possible way. The ball, the ball did not go 700 feet in the air. Like, there's no way. You know, like, so I just think, on the one hand, people would have seen a lot of stuff that would have dazzled them. On the other hand, it would have seemed less dazzling because we would watch it a million times. So I think the winner in this case is mythology. <laughs> and, and with great mythologies, there's always those, you know, origin stories. And, and the birth of Bo is pretty interesting. His father, big track A.D. Adams, is nowhere to be found the day Bo's born. Um, the way Florence <laughs> comes to Bo's name, given name, is pretty funny. Can, can you share with our audience why he was named Vincent Edward? Yeah, it was the actor, Vincent Edwards, who did Ben <laughs> Casey. Uh, and uh, that was his mom, Florence's favorite TV show. And, you know, by the time you have your your 10th kid, I think you've run out of names a little bit, our original names. So it was Vincent Edward for Vincent Edwards, the actor. Uh, and that was it, your favorite TV show, Ben Casey, which I've never seen, I got to say. Oh, that's crazy. So you also really painstakingly paint the picture of Butler Avenue in the Times, which included George Wallace, who was the governor-elect, and the chaos of his early childhood, as, as well as you put in, uh, you know, thing is his A.D. Ad- the only thing that A.D. Adams gave Vincent was a speech impediment. Um, the stutter most certainly was genetic, you're right. How did all those things impact and shape Bo? Oh, man, usually. I mean... Deep South, single mom, dad lives across town. Um, one of 10 kids living in a three-room house with no running water, tar paper roof. Um, wore his sister's hand-me-down shoes to school. If he didn't just go in socks. Severe, severe stutter, held back a grade. Was a bully, had the crap kicked out of him. I think there's a common theme you see in sports, and sometimes we become numb to it, which is upsetting because it's actually really impressive, which is people who have had the least are hungry for the most. And if you look at his life and you look at his sort of career, that hunger was something like that was something like, I don't want, he, he was terrified by the idea of going to reform school because an older brother told him, if you go to reform school, they will rape you. Like that was what, so he had this fear. I do not want to go to reform school and get raped by people. 
Um, and he saw his mom struggling, struggling, struggling. And here's this way out, this thing you can do, this thing you're really good at, this thing that people are paying attention to. And so I think the poverty and the shame of poverty and the empty stomach were very powerful tools in his success. You know, one of the things, as Mark said, and you mentioned is the stutter. Why did you feel it was so important to make that a thread in the book and to share with our listeners, viewers, about how in college he finally found help from a theater professor, Ralph Miller? Well, it was such a profound impact in his, um, in his life. And like, you talk to people who stutter, and I have talked to many people who stutter, you guys probably have too, and like, it's inescapable. And that doesn't mean people will learn to deal with it or they adjust to it or whatever. Bo Jackson certainly learned uh, speech patterns and approaches, but it does have an impact on you. It does impact your life in certain ways. And you almost certainly went through being made fun of as a kid because kids are ruthless. Um, and I thought that was important. And he basically goes to college and they had the Auburn has this, had this great SID who later became the athletic director, David Housel. And he was really concerned about Bo's stutter because of all the media attention and he basically hooked him up with the theater department and Bo started working with teachers and they really worked on the idea like Bo, when you heard him early on talk, there was a lot of I, 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 and he'd be fighting through to get through the I, 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 and teachers were saying, just calm it down. You don't have to fight through it. We're kind of roll with it, you know, take a break, take a pause. You can say, I think. You know, like instead of the push, 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 push. And if you hear him speak to this day, he's a very deliberate speaker. It's very, it feels like you're in the presence of royalty in a sense, the way he speaks. And it really is just sort of overcoming the horrors of a, of a young stutter. Yeah, it's so interesting. AJ and I recently spoke to Larry Zonker about his new book. And one of the defining you know, plays he talks about was the fact he was a defensive player and a bad kick by a Ravinia High School kicker in the final minutes of a sophomore season changed everything for him because he was up front as one of the blockers, but he ended up with the ball and he ran and the people could see what he could do. Mm-hmm. Something really similar happened with Bo. Um, Butch Hudspin punt, even though the paper credits Timothy Reese on the play, it was yeah. a play that would open eyes. So tell our audience a little bit about that and how that happened. It was a, it was a game. It was the end of a game. Game was over. McDory was dominating. So they threw Bo Jackson back to return a punt. Somewhere out there, Butch Hudspeth is thrilled that you just mentioned his name. Um, and it was like, and Bo returned it for a touchdown. It was a dazzling punt return. And it was, holy crap. You know, it was holy crap. Um, it's funny because I wrote a Brett Favre biography years ago. And in a way, Brett Favre and, and Bo Jackson shared this thing where, like, they weren't really appreciated until they were appreciated. Like, Brett Favre had this monster arm. And his dad was his football coach, and he just was wed to the to running a ball 35 times a game, running the I formation. And with Bo, it's as weird as it sounds. There were two other running backs at McAdory High School who were really good. And somehow they were really good enough to make Bo Jackson, you know, at most in high school, he was getting 11 carries a game. He wasn't getting many carries. Um, but that kick return sort of showed people, wait, this guy should be getting more carries. But throughout it, I mean – in the state of Alabama, he was the number two ranked running back as a senior after Allen Evans of Enterprise High School. Marcus Dupree graduated high school the same year as Bo. Marcus Dupree of Philadelphia, Mississippi, was a far, far, far more well-known and highly touted high school product uh, prospect than Bo. So, as we mentioned, 
supposed natural father, A.D. Adams, was really not a presence in his life, even though he lived across town because he had a family of his own. But as people began noticing Bo's athletic prowess in baseball, football, track, into his life came Freelon Abbott, who yeah. described as, and I use air quotes here, a booster for Auburn University. So Abbott was instrumental in Bo choosing to play football at Auburn instead of in-state rival Alabama. What did Abbott do for Bo? What do you think Abbott got out of it? Well, I mean, number one, he, he gave him money. Like, he did give him money. That's a fact. Um, he, it's funny. He, I mean, that's the number one thing. He gave him money. He gave him support. He, uh, he employed his mother and I never, I could never, I don't know for sure whether the employing of the mom specifically related to Bo, but he did his, he did his mother, Florence, Freeland Abbott at one point owned basically like a cleaning service and he employed Bo's mom to work for him. Um, you know, the booster system back there was really weird and you would have these guys like my age who so loved a football program that they did everything they could to make sure 18-year-old kids were going to that program. Now, I find that beyond pathetic. Like It's kind of like, get a life, man. Like, you're 50 years old and you're still, you know, praying that. I mean, it's so weird, you know? It's like, on the one hand, I write about sports and I get it. And on the other hand, I write about sports and I'll never get it. That, like, need for your... It's just weird. But he really, Auburn really, really utilized him in a way, is a protective cocoon um, against all the major league teams that were interested in drafting Bo out of high school and and as well as at University of Alabama. And he would sit next to Bo's mom during baseball games, high school baseball games. He would show up all the time making sure Bo was aware, making sure the family was aware that um, that there was Auburn was a place to go and Auburn had a real interest. And he just steered and steered and steered Bo Jackson toward Auburn. Meanwhile, Alabama unintentionally did everything they could to screw it up. They told Bo that he'd probably be a defensive player and he wouldn't be able to touch the field for years. Uh, when he took a visit to Alabama, it wasn't an official visit and Bear Bryant wouldn't come down and meet with him. He had to go up to the top of the coach, coach's tower to talk to him. And at the time, Bear Bryant was really at the end end of his coaching career and was sort of a drunk and kind of lost a little bit. So Auburn was pushing hard. They had a booster. Pat Dye was ripped. Pat Dye visited the house. And, you know, it definitely didn't hurt having a booster interest in your services. He goes on to win the Heisman there. And your description of that night, if no one had ever read anything by Jeff Perlman, to me, the description of that night is coincidental. It's you. and But but for me, and I will we'll show my age here as well, it's kind of Dave Barry meets David Halverson meets Irma Bombeck. You cover everything, but you know you put that little snarkiness with a couple of Z's after each and everything that went oh, on in that night. H- how did you develop that style of writing, and how do you decide in a book that's five hundred plus pages where to add that in? Because it, you know there, there's periods where it's straightforward reporting, and then your personality comes through. You know, in a book of this size, how and when do you decide when to do that? I don't have a great answer. I um. You know, I think I sort of kind of write like I talk a little bit. And that's not, I feel like a lot of young writers don't really get that. Like they think, like you can't actually write like you talk or it would make no sense whatsoever. You know what I mean? When people say, like when I was at Sports Illustrated, there'd be writers and people would say, look, that guy's really conversational. He's a great conversational writer, like Steve Rushin or Rick Riley or Gary Smith. Like they're great conversational writers. But if you talk to those guys, 
it's not like having a conversation with them is like reading. It's like there's there's this thing, conversational writing, where just it's casual and it's laid back and you could put these asides in there. And I really became more calm. I'm never, it's not fully, sometimes I really muck it up, but like as you get older and you read more and you experience more, you just sort of get more comfortable with your flow, your own flow and your own approach. And um, I just, I think I see, this is, I'm not saying, this is not a braggy thing. I, re, I I hope it doesn't come off that way. Like, I love little weird stuff. Like, I love, I love that I got the menu at the Heisman, at the Heisman dinner. I found the menu. And I love that. Like, I love the menu. I love seeing the name of the orchestra that was playing. And I love that it was like a hundred old white men in tuxedos, Bo Jackson, Herschel Walker, and Doug Flutie. Like, that's basically who was there. I love that stuff. You know, I love... Like I had a chapter in my book, not a full chapter, but a lot of it about the Japan ball. And it was this obscure ball game that Bo Jackson played in after it doesn't even exist anymore. I loved everything about it. A friend of mine who proofread the book named Mike Lewis was like, you're going to cut the Japan ball, right? I'm like, I'm not cutting a word of the Japan ball. I freaking love the Japan ball. I love that he was posing with sumo wrestlers in Japan. There's a story that a guy from uh, an SMU lineman named uh, Ron Roy Dunn on the trip told me about when they were all in Japan and, they used to get gifts everywhere they went. They make an appearance, get a gift, make an appearance, get a gift. And one appearance, they were given apples. And Bo was there with his girlfriend and his mom. And they were getting off the bus and they left the apples on the bus. And they get off the bus and Bo's mom, who was no joke, says to Bo, she says, young man, where's your apple? And he's like, I left on the bus, mama. Go get your fucking apple. Then he says to the girlfriend, Young lady, where is your apple? She gets it. Then she turns to Roy Dunn and SMU Lyman. She's never met. Young man, where is your apple? And he's like, I didn't want to piss off Bo's mom. So I just <laughs> wanted my apple. Like, I love stuff like that. I live for stuff like that. The little tiny, tiny, tiny minutia details. And you can really have fun with that stuff if you allow yourself. And there's a thin line do you, of going too far and overwriting it. And sometimes I definitely cross that. Or playing it snarky and kind of fun and quick. And I, I, I aspire for that. Sometimes I get it, sometimes I don't, but I do try. I know the pearl sometimes have admitted myself as being too snarky. Oh, yes. down, but yeah, me too. The hardest thing is to write like you're talking. So, so Bo was scouted by both Major League Baseball and the NFL. As you note in the book, most people assume he chose football because the money was greater and he wouldn't have to start in the minor leagues. But instead, he chose to sign with the Kansas City Royals for considerably less money than he's offered by the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. You describe how badly the Bucks owner you color has played the negotiations. I think, well, that certainly is a factor. I mean, Mike Kate is really based on another theme in the book that he would have chosen baseball anyway because he wouldn't have had to go to practices. You know, yeah. uh, I think he would have chosen football, to be honest with you. I think if a different team had picked him number one and the money, the money was so much more in football. And for, let's say the Raiders drafted number one. There's no... There is no way Al Davis would have let him get away to baseball. This is not. He would have offered him ungodly amounts of money to sign. But Hugh Culverhouse was a cheap, racist prick of a man. I mean, a few years earlier, he let Doug Williams leave to the US, for the USFL. And it was so clearly a black quarterback thing. Like, it was disgusting. So Hugh Culverhouse had a lot of things. He, he basically ruined Bo Jackson's baseball eligibility as a, as a senior. He had so many things going against him. I honestly... One of the cool things about Bo is that he he really enjoyed doing the nonconformist thing. 
He really did. He loved people. He definitely relished people saying, there's no way this guy's going to play baseball and then playing baseball. Like he liked that. But I do think he was a far better, more polished football player than baseball player. And I think if the right team had drafted him and handled it correctly, I think he would have gotten an NFL. It doesn't mean he wouldn't have maybe tried playing baseball in the offseason, but I think football would have been his sport. So maybe because of his social awkwardness, he seems to have trouble making friends with his teammates. And certainly he gets to Kansas City, played for the Royals, and did something to really kick off the Royals, such as Willie Wilson and Frank White and Kevin Seitzer, as you mentioned. Yeah. yeah. As he went on, he seemed to make friends among the Royals, even more so than among the Raiders, George Brett in particular. They were the most supportive after his career-changing football injury. So how did he go about winning over the skeptics who wondered about his commitment to baseball? I don't think he really fully did. Um, this is going to sound really simplistic. I think you just get used to someone. Like, I actually do. I think you just get used to someone. Like, Bo Jackson comes along, and one of the first things he does with the Royals is he hands out autographed photos of himself, literally around the locker room. I'm going <laughs> to hand out photos of myself. That's preposterous. Like that sets bad judgment. He um he used to set up a target and shoot bow and uh, shoot arrows across the clubhouse. Like that's not cool. He was not very good about signing autographs. That was not for teammates. That was not cool. He had a lot of things like that. And when he was done with the Royals, when he got hurt, uh, and when they released him, I would say most of the players were pretty indifferent to it. Like I think most of the players were like all right. When, when, when do we, you know, like he just, they got used to him, but I don't think there was that much love. I think George Brett really admired his athleticism. Um, I think some of the guys, when they got to know him, acknowledged that he was just a quiet little awkward guy, that he wasn't a bad guy, but he was an awkward guy, but I don't think they ever loved him. I don't think he was ever loved. That's pretty interesting because we've talked to you every single time you have a book. And I think we really got into this when you did the book about Clemens and um, a lot of your subjects are very flawed and maybe not so much liked by other people. You told us that you find them more interesting than people that are liked because, um, you know, even with all their warts, there's always something that, that you can get out of it. But you take a look at Bo and, and, you know, you never hear him campaigning to get into the Pro Football Hall of Fame or you don't see him, you know, on all these different TV shows uh, since, you know, him being at the height where, you know, we saw Bo knows football and all these things. You really haven't seen much. He's been out of the spotlight. You know, he does even his charity, the biking charity. It's so low key. So I'm wondering with all these different projects you've done through the course of this book. You know, did you come to like, you know, you grew up watching him and, and marveling at his athleticism. But through the course of this book, did you find yourself liking him more as a person than you expected to? Two things. Number one, I don't think there's any case to be made, no disrespect, that he's an NFL Hall of Famer. I mean, he played 38 games, he ran for 2,700 yards. His yard per carry is amazing. It's 5.4, which is ridiculous. I don't really think there's a case to be made. As much as I would love for that, it would be he just didn't play long enough. He played four partial seasons. Um, I I don't think I'd love hanging out with him. Like, I don't think he'd be an amazing <laughs> hangout. I don't like, you know, like, I just heard too many stories of him kind of not being that nice to people as far as, like, autograph shows and people just coming up to him. Like, he's real prickly. And I um, I don't have a ton of patience for prickly people. Like, I think... 
I understand you don't want people interrupting you during dinner. I really do. I just think your career is based upon public consumption of something you offered, which is football and baseball. And you should be honored that people remember you. So I don't love it. I'm, I don't think he's a bad guy by any means, but he's really prickly. Um, but I do think what happens when you work on these books and you sort of journey along for it is you come to admire the person's sort of perseverance, their rise, what they came from. I think you start to understand why someone is prickly. Again, if people are always taking advantage of you, I mean, if you're a young African-American kid growing up in the South in the 60s and 70s, and you're an athletic marvel, you're going to have a series of older, almost always white men coming along and trying to take advantage of your services. And you know that they would not have had any interest in you 10 years prior. You know, it's just that sports is now a thing that's been, you know, the desegregation has happened. So I sort of get it. I get the prickliness. I get the distrust. You've been used. You've used, you know, you've been chewed up a few times. But likable is probably not the word I would use. And that's okay. It's also interesting because you go at great lengths to talk about Nike and the whole bone nose campaign. You know, his decision to play football and become a two-sport athlete, you know, how much do you think that was driven by Nike, who would clearly benefit by having a multi-sport star as a face of one of their shoe lines? Um, it was a couple of things. Uh, number one, he had a he had a college teammate named Chris Woods, who was a wide receiver at Auburn. And in 1987, he joined the Raiders. And when Bo found out he joined the Raiders, Bo actually called him up and said, tell Al Davis to draft me. And uh, I thought that was very interesting. I actually didn't know that. And, and um and they did. So he definitely had an itching to try both sports. But you did have Nike, who he had signed with, saying, basically, think of all the amazing things we could do if you're a two-sport star, if you're a two-sport player. Think about what we can do with this cross-trainer shoe, how we could market this. The possibilities are limitless. And Bo's agents and representatives definitely put the worm in his ear that, you know, this, this could be an enormous marketing opportunity if you decide to do this. So he wanted to anyway. Again, if the Buccaneers hadn't drafted him in football, I think he, he, I think he would have played in the NFL. Um, but he also did see it as a bonanza, marketing-wise, financially. And also, he liked shocking. He liked shocking people. He liked doing things no one else did. It was one of the cool things about him. So, sticking with Nike for a second, this gets into something that I once did. One of my favorite stories in the book. So, I once served on a committee to pick a new advertising agency for the I Love New York account. And on the committee was an advertising legend. His name is Carl Spielvogel, and in the course of our discussions back was he told us how he and his business partner struggled for a new tagline for the Coke account. Until one day the light bulb went on, he walked into his partner and said, I've got it. It's the real thing. Nike's agency, Weedon Kennedy, had a sort of similar aha moment that led them to the bone nose campaign. So can you share that with our, our listeners? Now, are you referring to the 1989 All-Star game? I'm referring to the... Uh, be both this, both that, and uh, and getting a, mu- a musician into the ad campaign. Oh yeah, well they, you know, they were having these meetings with Nike, and this idea about what we can do, and they had worked with um, Bo Diddley on a commercial. Now I find it, I think it's amazing because Bo Diddley was not a uh, an A list, B list, or maybe even C list mm-hmm. musician at that point. He was basically like Otis Redding minus eighty. You know, like he was that kind of not. Not, not a BB King minus 80. You know, he wasn't a big time guy, but they'd worked with him, I think, on a Toyota commercial. And they really liked, they really liked him. And they were talking about like, oh, Bo this, Bo that, Bo 
Bo knows blah, blah, blah. And then Bo, you don't know Diddley. And then they were like, Bo Diddley, Bo Diddley, Bo Diddley. We worked with Bo Diddley. We should, Bo Diddley. And they present this idea. They come up with this idea, Bo, you don't know Diddley. And then, well, what if we have different athletes from different sports saying Bo knows this and Bo knows that. And Bo Diddley saying at the end, Bo, you don't know Diddley. And the thing that's so amazing is it sounds so cornball talking about it here. Like it just sounds corny. Like that's your big idea, Bo Diddley. You don't know Diddley. But it works so well. And one of my favorite moments of reporting, or maybe in the book, is 1989 All-Star Game. Bo's only All-Star Game. He's leading off. Tony LaRusso thinks it'll be cool to have him lead off. So he has him lead off. And Nike did this enormous ad buy. And they were going to premiere the commercial, you don't know Diddley commercial, in the fourth inning of the All-Star Game. And all the Nike executives are watching the game from Mickey Mantle's restaurant in Manhattan. And it's a beautiful day in Southern California. It's at Angel Stadium. In the booth are Vince Scully and Ronald Reagan, recently completing his second term as president and a former announcer. Um, Bo Jackson comes up. Rick Russell's on the mound. Second pitch, crap slider. Bo hits it. I mean, dead center onto the batter's eye. Fans scurry out. A law student from BYU. Interesting. I'm wearing a BYU shirt today, which I don't know why. Holds it up, holding the ball. And all the Nike executives in New York's Mickey Mantle restaurant are going crazy because they just had this moment of serendipity, you know, where this just happened and this merging of advertising and sports just into one. And that ad campaign absolutely blew up. And I still consider it the greatest singular sports ad ever. And it it still sounds so corny, but just a great ad. Two sport athletes and Dave DeBusher and Gene Conley for baseball, basketball, Dick Janowitz, as you mentioned, the book for baseball, football. The obvious comparison with Bo was Deion Sanders. And because the sports were the same, because they essentially were contemporaries. Personality-wise, they couldn't have been any more different. Mm. And clearly, a strong case we made that Bo was clearly the better athlete than Deion. But Bo was very dismissive of Sanders. Can you tell me some of Bo's thoughts? And do you feel that Bo felt threatened by Sanders? I do. So Dion comes along, he's still at Florida State, and he's playing with the Yankees, and he's in spring training with the Yankees. It's actually funny. He comes along, and Willie Randolph has just completed his time with the Yankees, and he's moved on to the Dodgers. And the Yankees give Willie, uh, a very young Deion Sanders Willie Randolph's uniform number, number 30, to wear in camp. And Ron Guidry, among other Yankee veterans, is just furious. He's like, he has not earned that number. You should not be wearing that number. Then up changing his number. And, you know, Deion Sanders at the time, the jewelry all over the place, uh, referring to himself as primetime and prime, um, just so cocky, like so cocky. And actually, in real life, a very nice guy and actually a very sort of soft-spoken guy, but like on the field, in sports, cocky, 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 cocky. And Bo Jackson saw this, saw this two-sport guy. And he's in spring training with the Royals and Deion's in spring training with the Yankees. And he just starts taking shots at Deion Sanders. This isn't how you do it. This guy's going to learn lessons. He needs to grow up. He needs to mature. And Deion really took it personally. Deion was like, I don't, what did I do to this guy? And he's just an old guy. He wasn't even old, but he's, he's just an old guy trying to old man barking at, you know, barking at traffic. And I'm Deion Sanders. And I do think Bo felt threatened and he was special. He was a two sport guy. It was his terrain and only his terrain. And all of a sudden, here's this guy coming along, and he's just as good a football player as Bo, not as good a baseball player, but just as good a football player. And he's cocky, and he's unlikable, and he's, you know, 
And Bo doesn't like it. So Bo did not like hot dogs. He was not a he was not a sufferer for hot dogs. So he teed off, and they wound up being friends. And Bo actually a few years ago appeared on Dion's podcast, and it was really a delightful conversation. And they look back and laugh, but it was not pretty at the time. Maybe the most amazing thing about Bo is he was able to play Major League Baseball with an artificial hip. Yep. So described in the book, he had mixed success at best. Why do you think it was so important for him to come back? Was he trying to prove something to sports fans or to himself? Um, I'd say largely to himself. He uh, Maybe the Royals. He was really – it's so weird. He was very hurt when the Royals released him. So he got hurt in an NFL game, playoff game in 1991, comes to spring training in 91 on crutches. You know, reporters are like, are you going to come back for opening day? And he's like, I hope to. I should. Maybe I will. And the Royals are furious because the Royals will spend years saying you shouldn't play football. Like, don't play football. This is a bad idea. Don't play football. We really don't want you to play football. They thought it not only was a physical risk, but hurt his development as a baseball player. Well, he plays football. He gets hurt. He reports to camp. The Royals see him on crutches. Their doctor tells him this injury is going to ruin him. And uh, they release him. And he took it personally, which he is kind of weird because he was a he was a guy who decided to play football. Um and he really, when he was released and was signed by the White Sox, he's like, his basic take was, I'm going to shove it up their asses, the Royals, that how dare they do this to me? I'm going to prove it to them. And he was wrong. What they, the Royals made a very savvy, and they're going to have to pay $2 million for a guy on one hip. Wouldn't have made any sense. So I know that Bo turned down your interview request. Have you, you know, sent him a copy of the book since the book has been out? Have you heard anything from him? And additionally, you know, I guess we've never asked you this about some of your other books, like the Clemens book, you know, other books. Have you sent them to the subjects? And what has been, you know, the reaction and the feedback you've gotten from Bo if he sent them and other, you know, subjects that you've done books on? So I did send Bo a book with a note. I um, I never heard back. He tweeted, my book came out on October 25th, but I, I guess words start getting out on October 13th. I put up the tweet. He wrote, if someone releases a, quote, unauthorized biography, it means they're using someone else to profit for themselves. Don't be fooled into thinking this is a true representation. If you want to hear the real story, wait for me to release it. And um, the weird thing about this, I think you guys would appreciate this, is Turtles. Like, he um, he appeared around that time on a couple of shows, including Rich Eisen's show, uh, radio show. And Rich asked him what the greatest moment of his professional sports career was. And Bo had the exact date. I forgot what date it was, but he said the exact, oh, I know exactly what it is. So-and-so date. I was playing for the Royals, and um, we were hosting the Milwaukee Brewers, and I got called out, and I turned to argue the strike call with the umpire. He threw me out. I wanted to get thrown out. I got thrown out on purpose because I wanted to be with my wife in the hospital for the birth of our child. Well, that sounded unfamiliar to me, so I looked it up. On the day he knew, he said they weren't playing the Brewers, they were playing the Red Sox. Bo wasn't even in the lineup that day. Um, and he wasn't thrown out of any games that year, right? Like zero. And I'm not saying he's lying at all. Like at all. Memory is a tricky thing. You know, it's been 30 years. But when he says, like, um, if you want, if you want to hear the real story, wait for me to release it. Like, he wrote an autobiography in 1990, Bo Knows Bo with Dick Schaap. It's a great book. It was a very important book for a young me. Um he wrote in the book that he, when he was playing Auburn baseball as a freshman, he went over his first 21 with 21 strikeouts. I start doing the research. I know. And I believe that. And I actually, when I was pitching my book, 
I was telling that story. Here's this amazing story about Bo for 21. Well, I start researching it. His first game against uh, Illinois State, he went two for five. Wow, that's weird. In his autobiography, he wrote about his first college run against Wake Forest. Slammed into the line, no gain. Well, I watched the game on tape. His first run, he ran for like nine yards up the gut. A really beautiful run, actually. And I'm not saying he's lying at all. I, I, there's no reason to think he's lying. But when people say, like, if you want to hear the real story, wait for me to release it. I just take issue with that. I think biographies exist for a reason. It's because someone's willing to go back and dig through everything. And he's willing to interview 720 people. And I view Bo Jackson, I'm sure, the same way John Meacham viewed Abraham Lincoln. You know, like, or Jonathan I viewed Muhammad Ali. Like, I consider him an influential and important history figure in sports. And autobiographies are one person's take, but a biographer is trying to look at it from a much wider view. So I don't know if he's read the book. I don't know if he, he was nice when I talked to him on the phone when I was working on it. I talked to him for a half hour. He said he wouldn't help, but he was really nice about it. He wasn't a jerk about it. Maybe he, there's some stuff that was brought to his attention. He's not happy about. I don't know, but I sent him a book and I, I think this book is 98% sort of owed to Bo Jackson. Um, I really do. And I think if you, and I've spent the last month, five weeks now, telling one Bo Jackson story after another, all of them marvel, marveling at him. So if this thing does anything but help his legacy, I'd be shocked. <laughs> what about some of the other subjects? Have you had, you know, any interaction with, with uh, like Clemens or, or oh, yeah. I, I know, the Cowboys, a lot of <laughs> those guys, you know, some stuff in that book as well. I can go through the buffet line. So um, my first book was about the <laughs> first book was about the '86 Mets. I was a very young writer. My first national TV appearance ever was going to be on the Best Damn Sports Show, and they flew me from New York to LA to be on the Best Damn Sports Show. And I was going to be on with Lenny Dykstra and Ron Darling. And I show up, and Laura Marcus was the producer, and she said to me, um, "Lenny hates the book. He's not coming on." And I said, "Oh," but she said, "But Ron Darling is here," and I was kind of terrified, right? And I see Ron, and he's like, Jeff, you nailed it, man. You just nailed it. And I was like, oh, thank God. Um, Bonds I never heard from. That was book number two. Book number three is the Dallas Cowboys book. I did a national TV appearance with Emmett Smith. It was for ESPN. I He did not talk to me for the book. We were on this little panel with Bob Lee. And Emmett says his stuff, and I say his stuff. And Bob Lee says, all right, guys, thank you so much. And Emmett Smith goes, hey, real derisively, hey, Jeff, go sell some books. And he meant it as like a middle finger to me. But then I talked to Darren Woodson, the safety from the Cowboys, and he said to me, I have no idea how you got all that stuff. That was amazing. So Clemens, he tweeted angrily at me. That was a first. Whatever, that's fine. Um, so, you know, you go through the different, you know, you just go through the different. The the Lakers book, Jeannie Bustle told me she loved it. Um, Favre book, the family loved it. I don't know. You just do your best. You're not writing it to please the athletes. You're writing it to tell a true story. Absolutely. Where's the best place for everyone to get a hold of it? I mean, if you send me $10,000, I'll get you an autographed copy. But otherwise, whatever your local bookstore, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, all the, all the regular spots. As always, so much, you know, thanks so much for your time. Uh, always a tremendous read. And, and we look forward to every single time there's a Jeff Perlman book out there. The, the one thing I am waiting for, though, Yep. Is a definitive Hall and Oates biography. I mean, when would anyone read it? I love Hall and Oates. Doug Glanville loves Hall and Oates. I guess you love Hall and Oates. Would anyone else read the Hall and Oates biography? Yeah, you know, Daryl and John probably. <laughs> maybe, maybe, maybe. Daryl Ego that guy to buy twelve copies. So maybe. 
<laughs> uh, Jeff Perlman, the last folk hero, the life and myth of Bo Jackson, available everywhere now. <laughs>